Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. What does it mean to be a Christian historian? Can there be such a thing as Christian history? In his new book, Christian Historiography, Five Rival Versions, published by Baylor University Press in 2015, Dr. Jay Green of Covenant College explores these and other related questions. Dr. Green manages to both objectively present different approaches to Christian historiography while providing his own helpful valuations of their strengths and weaknesses gained through years of study and teaching. Dr. Green's own approach, combined with his clear writing style and the tight organization of his book, means that this work is not only of interest to historians, both Christians and non-Christians, but would be perfect for classroom use by undergraduates and graduates as well. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jay Green about his new book, Christian Historiography, Five Rival Versions. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Franklin. It's good to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So I wonder if you could begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I, uh, I teach history at Covenant College, which is located on Lookout Mountain, Georgia, but it is a suburb of Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee, and uh, a Presbyterian school. And uh, I'm in my 19th year uh, teaching history and uh, small liberal arts college with about a thousand students. So... Uh, I kind of have to be a, a bit of a jack of all trades, so I teach a wide variety of things, but uh, but teach American uh, variety of courses in American history, some non-Western courses, in modern Middle East, uh, and then courses in sort of historical methods and, of course, uh, historiography. Oh, excellent! Yeah, and that's what we were talking about, right? In the pre-interview, you're doing this, you know, a lot of neat courses where you do the kind of introductory to history, but also, as you said, this is a Presbyterian university, so you get to do kind of, like, what'd you call it, a foundations class? Yeah, I also uh, a course that uh, students at Covenant are required to take really at the very beginning that it sort of introduces them to uh, the life of the mind, kind of from a Christian perspective, and kind of an introduction to the way. Uh, a school like Covenant engages the world of ideas, uh, so it, it really is a lot of fun. Plus, it's very multidisciplinary, and and uh, you have an opportunity to sort of walk alongside uh, students, many of whom this is utterly brand new stuff. So, yeah, that's a lot of fun. Right, it, it kind of reminds me. It's it's funny when I I teach world history. Some you know I teach about. Um, ancient Judaism, and of course, uh, soon I'm going to, well, actually tomorrow I'll be talking about the rise of Christianity in Rome. Mm. And it's interesting because even though we're in kind of the Bible belt, um, and whenever I do, like, I'll sometimes do like an anonymous religious survey, a lot of the students, even though they, they're very firm in their belief, they don't really know much. Oh, that's for sure. Uh, um, I'll make Bible references and they won't. <laughs> yeah, and I always remind students of that whenever I'm teaching Islam uh, in, in the modern Middle East. I said, look, you have to remember... Uh, that if if you're asked to sort of account for the long history and the theological uh, fine points of Christianity, you might be a little stumped, and you need to remember that probably people around the world are uh, simply because they identify 
uh, with a particular religion doesn't mean they're as deeply versed in it as, uh, as you might think. Right, exactly. So um, it's interesting you, you mentioned, you know, that at your university there's this, you know, it's, it's a university that's teaching knowledge, but it also has this kind of foundations class. Yes. And so in your, your um, and that's one thing I really enjoyed about your book is you're trying, you're, you know, you're, you're engaging with this issue of historiography, but from a Christian perspective. Right, right. So I'm, oh, go on. No, go ahead. I, I, you, were, you were teeing up for a question. Oh, yeah. So I was just curious, how did you come to write this? Well, that's a, it's a good question. I, I went to a, a Christian college and uh, was a history major and I've loved history since I was a little kid. Um, but in all honesty, I felt more than anything like I was simply learning a bunch of facts and more than anything uh, studying so I could do well maybe one day on Jeopardy. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't until the tail end of college and more than that when I started into my master's program that it occurred to me that people really did engage the world of history uh, interpretively uh, in, in some very different ways depending on uh, their gender, their social location, uh, and their religious convictions. And uh, I became kind of uh, both fascinated and in, 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 at times uh, a little unsettled by uh, the degree to which uh, my own reading of history uh, was affected by those things. So uh, I, I did a lot of reading and ended up uh, exploring pretty deeply in my master's program uh, problems and challenges of Christian historiography. And it's just really been as I have developed as a, as a believer myself and as a professional historian, trying to bring these two things together uh, and trying to be faithful to both uh, has just kind of been a constant theme, kind of personally and professionally. Um, so when I came to Covenant, I was pleased to see that unlike my own undergraduate training, uh, Covenant was pretty self-consciously trying to induct students into the world of historiography in a broad sense, but also helping them uh, develop uh, a more sort of faithful Christian response to history. Uh, and we have a junior level course that is on historiography, which is basically a typical history of history uh, exploring the various accounts of what history is, uh, the rise of uh, sort of a scientific uh, methodology of, of history as, a, as its own discipline that is trying to, uh, as Leopold von Ranke talked about, uh, you know, trying to understand history as it actually happened. Uh, but then the last third of the course, we spend uh, a fair amount of time exploring the various ways that Christians have understood history and have at times tried to develop uh, something of at times a, a unique kind of Christian take on, on, on history. So I've taught that course for years and uh, it really is a signature course uh, for a major and has become really uh, a course that I love doing because it really is very personal uh, and it really does try to uh, have students take a, a deeper ownership, um, certainly of, of history, but even of their faith. Uh, so 
in doing that course um, and developing kind of a, an effort to explain this, uh, I had an opportunity to have a sabbatical five or six years ago, and I looked around and I thought, you know, I wonder if this outline that I've been using in historiography to explain what I began to see as kind of a, a very specific um, approaches, or as I call in the book, versions of Christian historiography, whether whether or not that, that might actually make uh, a valuable book. So I started working on it, and uh, I was pleased that it sort of came together uh, as such. Well, I think you did make a, a valuable book. I really got a lot out of it. Um, what, what was your hope then that this book would do? Well, I, I wrote – my primary audience was fellow – believing historians uh, who were engaged in the work of scholarship but trying at some level to grapple with questions of faith and, first of all, trying to discern whether there was any relationship at all between one's personal identity as a Christian, uh, one's practices of Christian faith, and one sort of moral responsibility to live as a Christian in the world, any relationship between that and sort of the professional calling to produce scholarship. And so I, I wanted, I wanted to say, well, if you're, if you're going to engage in this question, um, a book that at least lays out what have been the approaches tried might be a useful starting point. So, that was my primary audience, sort of fellow Christians, uh, and well, frankly, uh, my initial audience were my students. So, uh, but as I as I was working on the book, I I thought both of them, but also of 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 colleagues and so forth who would be writing. I'm aware that to the extent that historiography is kind of a species of intellectual history, there are probably a fair number of non-believing historians who might find it at least a curiosity to know that there's this sort of intramural conversation happening among believers about questions of, of interpretation and uh, application of sort of background commitments uh, to the world of, uh, of, of scholarship. So I thought, you know, it, it might, there may be some, uh, some intellectual historians out there who just find this a, at least a curiosity uh, if not uh, a challenge in its own right. Right. Well, I think they will hopefully find it, it, it interesting because sometimes I know like if I go to the American Academy of Religion, there's this kind of attempt at times to to basically through lots and lots of primary research to do what you've done in a nice, neat little package. Oh, well, I, I, hope, so. I hope that that's I hope that that's the case. And the book is in all kinds of ways. Um, I just did a lot of reading <laughs> And tried to um, put the various um, strategies of people who are Christians writing history into some boxes that might at least function as a, at least an organizing principle. Uh, so, in, in certain ways, uh, if, if there's any originality to the book, it certainly in, isn't in its. Uh, maybe it's in the arrangement of an already existing and and quite vibrant conversation. Right. And as part of this conversation, there's, I mean, you, you raise some of the, that there's unique problems that Christian historians face that, that more secular historians don't. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about those problems? Yeah, I, I think, 
Well, first of all, I think there's an initial challenge uh, to discern whether or not this question even matters. Uh, because th there's a certain way of living out faith that thinks of it primarily as uh, a personal matter, a matter that is certainly relevant to uh, eternal questions of salvation and moral formation and family relations and certain personal and probably even professional ethics. But whether or not the questions of faith bear on the actual day-to-day -day work of reading sources, uh, in selecting and analyzing and writing about uh, the past, uh, whether or not it really matters at all. So I think that question all by itself is something that um, I'm guessing there's some really thoughtful, faithful believers who are first-rate historians who, frankly, don't care. And I don't think that, that they necessarily are bad Christians or poor historians for not doing so. But I, I also wouldn't mind sort of nudging them to at least consider uh, what, what some of the ways in which uh, faith perspectives, even unconsciously, are uh, sh shaping what they're doing. Uh, so I think that's one, I think that's one mat factor that's, a, that, that's at play. I would say another one is uh, the the ways in which uh, Christianity is uh, at it's at once timeless, uh, universal, and supra historical, uh, but it is also very much a faith that is highly reliant on uh, the record of the past. I mean, Jesus lived as a man in a particular time, in a particular place, and uh, the revelation of Jesus as we know it, uh, both in his person and through scripture as unfolded in real time. So I think that there are some, um, as, a, as a distinctly historical faith, trying to wrestle with questions of timelessness and universality, but also time-boundedness and particularity uh, really are are, are deep and, and perhaps even vexing questions that historians, this is kind of where historians live. So uh, in certain ways, I, I do believe just ignoring those or pretending like they're not there uh, is, is, well, maybe not advisable. I think it's something we probably, uh, as Christians, ought to at least be challenging one another on. So I think that the, the dynamics that are found uh, probably to some degree in all of the chapters and all of the, the, the options that I lay out in the book, uh, that th those tensions are kind of ever-present. Right, and, and speaking of the layout, I mean, our, you know, for our listeners, this book is very logically um, laid out, which makes my job as an interviewer very easy. Because uh, <laughs> there's five rival versions, well, there's five chapters. What, what do you know? Yeah, and, um, and Jay does a great job of explaining what each version is and what its strong points are and what its weak points are. So that, that, I think that, you know, this is one thing that, I highly recommend it for, for your own reading, but also this makes it great for classroom use, right? Because our, our students can pick it up, I think, more easily. Yeah, and that's really what I wanted, and, and I'm guessing uh, its primary audience will find will, will be found within uh, a classroom setting where you do have undergraduates or maybe seminary students or graduate students uh, trying to uh, think through kind of in a logical way that there are uh, different 
at times competing, but I think overlapping uh, options uh, of the ways in which this question of faith has sort of worked itself out uh, within scholarship. So I, uh, I'm glad you found it to be um, uh, at least a helpful uh, organization. No, it's fascinating. So if we if we start then with the first chapter, um, which is entitled "Historical Study That Takes Religion Seriously," could you tell us a little bit what, what is this approach? Yeah, this approach. I would say that this approach. Uh, I'm I'm a member of, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Conference on Faith and History, uh, and it it shows up at a few places within the uh, the book. But this is a professional organization uh, of historians who are believers, and that's. It's meant to be uh, historians of all kinds who happen to be Christians, uh, but it is overwhelmingly uh, – well, it's dominated by historians who study religion. And I think that that's – it's not surprising that believers who go into history are probably uh, – uh, have a disproportionate attraction to study uh, religion and to study themselves – and I think an initial and in some cases somewhat non-controversial way of expressing faith within history is to uh, elevate religion as a factor within the past as a meaningful factor. It's, it matters. It's, uh, it's significant. It's played a role in shaping institutions and cultures and nations. And I think – uh, acknowledging that it's a real factor, it's not sort of uh, a sort of a false set of uh, uh, convictions or uh, actions that have maybe in a Marxian sense underlying material or economic values, but it, it, it matters and, and it's a factor unto itself is one way, and I think a way that is, as I said, relatively non-controversial uh, way for Christians to exercise and express faith commitments in, in doing history. And I, I think probably a generation ago, this was a harder sell. Religion was not as commonly studied within history, or if it was, it was uh, kind of off to the margins. And uh, I don't know what your read on this in some of the areas that you study, but uh, probably beginning in the 1980s and certainly 1990s, uh, religion just becomes extraordinarily popular as a, as a field of study. And, and certainly a, a whole lot of people who are studying it have no faith commitments whatsoever. Uh, but some of the leading historians, at least in the in, uh, uh, history of American religion and American Christianity uh, are themselves Christians who are motivated in part to uh, demonstrate that religion has mattered and that religious ideas have been consequential. Uh, so I kind of start there in the book partly due to the fact that it is um, it has been, I guess we could look think of it as um, low risk. You can advocate that religion matters and you can take religion seriously without being perceived as trying to sneak Christian ideas or offer an alternate Christian interpretation 
within history. So I, I think that it's, um, it's, it's a widely shared notion. It's one um, that I don't think you're going to find many Christians anywhere who would find it disagreeable. Uh, and it's, uh, as I said, it's uh, low risk in the sense that you are, you can be fully accepted within the guild and not be perceived as uh, special pleading on behalf of your, you know, pet theological ideas or your uh, your own sort of religious agenda. Right. And so what other, um, I mean, that, that's a very good point that, that, you know, kind of a strong point, right? Like you said, you can be safe as a Christian kind of looking at this perspective. Are there any other strong points to this approach? Well, I think it does offer Christians uh, who are um, in in some ways wanting to make sense of uh, their own faith or wanting to to, uh, show it as being authentic, just a a place to demonstrate. Now, I, I I use an anecdote in one of the chapters of the book where a historian was writing, uh, who was a non-believer, uh, writing about Timothy Dwight, who was uh, a president of Yale College uh, back, I think, at the very beginning of the Second Great Awakening. And I think Stephen Burke was the name of the historian. And he began the research project as not a believer himself, but through the process of seeing Dwight's personal uh, convictions and the ways in which they played out in his life, he admits that through through the process of writing the book, he himself was converted, that Dwight had sort of one last (laughs) convert uh, from the grave, maybe not the last one, but certainly a late one. And it's, it it is an interesting thing. And I, not everybody who studies religion in the past necessarily takes it seriously in the same way. Uh, but I think that that acknowledging that it plays uh, a vital role and that it um, is not reducible, uh, as as I think a lot of secular ideology still would suggest reducible to, um, you know, uh, characterological traits or economic impulses or, or or something of that sort, but that it is kind of an independent variable, uh, I think can be uh, kind of a, a compelling point and, and one that I think still uh, can be, uh, can offer uh, kind of an interesting kind of witness. Now, I don't think, um, I don't think that people who take religion seriously very often do so as a way to bear witness to Christian faith, but I think it's sort of a, it can be a natural way of doing so. Right. And so then, I mean, those are the strong points. And one thing I like about, um, about your book is that you do a great job of kind of objectively explaining the characteristics of these different approaches. And then you then show in your judgment as a historian, what you think are the good and bad points. I like, I think you balance that very well. So you said the strong points. What do you think are some weak points of this approach? Yeah, well, I think I think the weak points uh, are, are as much as I said taking religion seriously matters and we should take religion seriously as an independent variable. 
I, I also think that uh, in the complexity uh, of life, religion very often uh, is uh, is is a negative force and is a uh, a tool in the and a weapon in the hands of of tyrants and those who are uh, seeking to uh, to do harm. So it's I think it's valuable and I think it does uh, offer one pathway of giving expression uh, to, uh, to, to to Christian faith. Uh, but I think it. The ways that it's done are are various and, and not all uh, not all equal. Uh, so I think it's it's one that um, uh, I think just needs to be looked at advisedly. I also think that it if this is if this is the sum and substance of what it is to be uh, a believer, I think uh, I mentioned the conference on faith and history, which for many feels like. Um, um, when we have meetings, some will say it's just another meeting of the American uh, Society of Church History. And I think my colleagues who do economic history or do agricultural history or, you know, do uh, diplomatic history of some sort are kind of perplexed to think, well, religion is interesting, but there's a lot of other things that are interesting as well. Do I, uh, am I required uh, to study religion in order to be a Christian historian, are there other ways of doing that, uh, or um, do the conversations among Christian historians don't pertain to me if this isn't my thing? Uh, so I think that, um, uh, in, in some respects, it's a it's an embarrassment of riches that we have so many uh, believing historians who have devoted themselves to studying religion, but it almost uh, at times, uh, seems to suggest that there, there really isn't anything worth studying, or at least there isn't anything worth studying Christianly uh, that doesn't have an explicit religious component. Uh, so I think it it can. Um, uh, I guess that would that would be kind of an important limit. Right. <clears throat> so n- another approach that you took um, is in chapter two, and the, the chapter titles are very helpful. Um, historical study through the lens of Christian faith commitments. Um, could you tell us what it does, what it, does that approach entail? Yeah, this is, uh, this is, a, is an approach that is uh, pretty strongly, at least it was initially uh, related to uh, a reformed theological, and some might even go so far as to say a Kuyperian understanding of reality that suggests that um, our identity as believers and the, uh, the mission of God in the world is comprehensive. It doesn't just affect our individual spiritual lives, but it affects all reality. Ms. Kuyper sort of famously said that Jesus looks on every square inch of creation, he declares it mine. So it's a it's a notion that says, uh, just as Jesus that that Christ claims all of reality is his. Uh, as believers, we are to bring a Christian understanding and witness to bear on all things. Uh, another thing that Kuiper was uh, interested in developing was, uh, in light of that, was kind of a uh, a, a very specific and unique Christian reading and uh, in, engagement 
uh, of all of life and all things. So it, it kind of works on the premise that um, being transformed by Christ and having uh, a Christian identity causes Christians to see the world differently through different lenses. I think the Christian worldview movement uh, was uh, largely a result of sort of this Kuyperian understanding. So this this approach kind of uh, departs from the notion that all Christians have to offer is sort of a, uh, a take on religious factors in the past, but that as Christians, because we see the world differently, uh, we're going to have sometimes a slight, maybe a radically different way of seeing all reality. Uh, probably the most influential uh, proponents of this view uh, have been those out of the Reformed tradition, particularly George Marsden. And I think if anybody uh, is familiar at all with the conversation of faith and history, uh, are going to be going to know who that is or might be some, somewhat familiar with some of his writings. Very prominent historian, now emeritus from uh, University of Notre Dame, who really tried to unpack this and tried to explain some of the ways in which what he called um, background faith commitments inform and shape uh, the historian's work so that um, we don't we don't believe that our faith is over here and our uh, scholarship is over here. Our faith is sort of working as a foundation, as a background, um, and it uh, uh, kind of has a, has a shaping influence. He wasn't um, he wasn't radical in his conviction that Christians could either, as a result of that, do history in a superior way. Uh, or because we were Christians, we did history better. Uh, but he said it was uh, a factor and, a, and an influence. And, he, and by the way, he said it isn't just Christians who see reality differently. All people uh, operate with background assumptions that inform what they see. So, so part of what he was doing was trying to raise to the level of consciousness the various ways in which personal identity and even social location uh, are a factor in causing us to see the world uh, differently. So he, he kind of, his argument uh, really came to light in a postscript to a book he wrote back in 1992 on the ways in which the university had become secularized and the ways in which religion uh, as a personal set of commitments and really as a, as a presence in the modern university had grown marginalized. And he made a play in the postscript of the book to say um, that, that, uh, the, that the university discourse had become impoverished by its marginalization of religious viewpoints, not just Christian ones, uh, but ones of all stripes. So he kind of lays out this, and the, the book um, kind of, hit the scene at the same time as philosophy and history and liter uh, literature departments are kind of in the throes of postmodernism. So really, in all kinds of ways, is a part of that conversation that is suggesting that there, there is no sort of neutral, enlightenment, detached way of seeing reality that all, 
all scholarship is informed by by faith perspectives. So, so this chapter really does try to explore uh, some of the prominent advocates of this view and some of the ways in which their views uh, have been um, uh, have been well have been explored and, and applied. So, so what then recommends this approach? Well, there's a certain kind of, um, I think, truth, truthfulness that comes in, um, and he even says so in the postscript. And he admits you know, he had tenure. Uh, it was not. It was kind of a, a itself for him, kind of a low risk thing. But he says, "Look, I'm writing about uh, largely Protestant people." throughout American history. Uh, I just need to, uh, for the sake of my audience, give some full disclosure to know that even though I'm trying as best I can to be fair and trying to honestly read these sources, uh, it probably would be useful for the audience to know that I'm a Christian uh, and I'm a pretty traditional one. And it probably influences what I see and how I describe what I see when I study the past in ways that I'm not even conscious of. Uh, so for him, it was a matter of, of intellectual honesty, uh, but also one that he thought uh, Christians would do well to um, be more conscientious of. And uh, because I, I think he was also a big believer that faith, as much as faith sheds light, it, it can also obfuscate. Uh, and so we, uh, uh, so he saw it as a measure of, of intellectual honesty and a, and a way to sort of tamp down the notion that uh, we function as detached, neutral um, ciphers who are just sort of uh, reading the past in some sort of pure, uh, some sort of pure way. So, so what then are the, the problems with this approach? Well, there was a bit of a backlash to um, Marston followed that that postscript up with a, a book about five or six years later called The Outrageous Idea of Christian Scholarship, where he took this idea of background faith commitments and he sort of tried to uh, understand how uh, he delved into them more deeply and talked about them not just in history, but kind of across the board and, you know, whether it's in biology or in um, political science or psychology. And it was a very thoughtful and challenging approach and a good many uh, uh, people were, were, were having none of it. Uh, and I think the, the, the approaches or the, the responses kind of were of two kinds. Uh, one were suspicious that, Christians had controlled the academy for generations and in all kinds of ways had made, uh, from a lot of people's point of view, were um, uh, marginalized other voices and were repressive. And there was a bit of a fear that the likes of Morrison in trying to assert the legitimacy of Christian voices, uh, there was a concern that there wasn't going to be an attempt at a re-Christianization of of the academy, which might feel even, you know, 20 years later, a little bit laughable, but still there was a concern that this, 
this idea had been tried and it wasn't necessarily for the good. Um, I think a more serious set of not not that that wasn't a serious uh, critique, but a, another one was concerned that um, for as much as Christians wanted to talk about a Christian reading of biology or of psychology or of even history, um, they wanted to say where is where is this thriving body of knowledge that you can call a uh, Christian body of scholarship and where, in what important ways, is it really all that different? A lot of people looked at, at Morrison and said, your, your history, for as much as you talk about your Christian background commitments, uh, it doesn't seem to be um, netting uh, scholarship that looks all that different from your secular colleagues. Is, there, is this really amount to anything? Is it really valuable? And I think... Um, now, now maybe we're maybe it's too soon to tell, uh, but I I do think that uh, that that that's a worthwhile criticism. That do we do we just talk about it as a, as a factor, um, but in in the end product, if we can't see anything that looks discernibly and distinctively unique and departing or recognizably Christian, uh, it, what's it amount to? Uh, I think the comparison is sometimes made to Marxist historiography, which is another sort of ideologically framed set of assumptions. And a lot of people said, now that's that's a tradition that has netted a body of scholarship that is um, discernible. Uh, you might not agree with it, but it is, uh, it, it, it's unique and distinctive and offering up a, a very different way of seeing the world. And there, there hasn't been a, a, as much... Um, people haven't been nearly as convinced that uh, the approach Morrison has taken is has been capable of doing that. Right. Excellent. Now, your your next chapter, um, being someone who studies Asia, who who studies Confucius a lot, oh. <laughs> I love the next the next chapter, especially historical study as applied Christian ethics. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, what, what is the, I mean, what does this approach entail? Yeah. Well, this is. The, the next three chapters, I think, uh, begin to depart a l- little bit from uh, what we might think of as traditional, professional, scholarly orthodoxy. I mean, Marsden was really trying to make a play for Christian background commitments, but was simultaneously, um, which was probably part of the critique, trying to also convince people that Christians were not a danger to academic discourse that we could play well with others. Uh, starting in, in, in this uh, third chapter, uh, we see a much more explicit difference that Christian might, Christians might make in offering uh, not just um, the idea that religion matters or that there are background kind of generic background commitments that are informing faith, but that, Christians have some, bear some responsibility to offer a moral critique of the people of the past, and this is this kind of harkens back to almost a pre-enlightenment, pre-history. Uh, in some some respects, doesn't really become its own discipline until the 19th century, uh, but a very old, uh, even ancient. 
understanding of history saw um, history as kind of the, uh, the the teacher of life uh, or as kind of philosophy teaching by examples. So, uh, and, and, and honestly, I think people outside the academy are much more comfortable with this idea that, you know, why do we study history? Well, to, we want to learn from the past. We want to uh, uh, gain moral insight and look at history as a series of moral tales of good guys and bad guys, of, of villains and heroes. And so for many, doing history Christianly means uh, offering up kind of a, uh, a template of Christian ethics uh, taught through example. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, well, that's, that's, that's certainly one approach uh, where we, we kind of bring Christian moral categories to bear on the past. Uh, so that's, uh, now, I think anyone who's trained as a professional historian already maybe starts getting a little bit um, uneasy uh, because one thing that, that I was trained in graduate school and, and uh, I'm guessing you may have had some similar advice that our, our, our role as historians isn't to judge the past but to describe it. Um, but there is a, there's a significant uh, body of writing uh, and, and some of it by professionals, a lot of it by uh, non-professionals who are writing history as uh, uh, kind of an exploration of um, and, and even a moral critique on the Right, right. Um, so I mean, I mean, one thing you mentioned was that you know, this, especially people outside of academia, this is something that seems very natural. And I know when I teach my introductory world history class, I do sometimes fall into the good guy things. Yeah. Like when I'm talking about Cincinnatus, cause I think he is a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think he's someone we can learn from. And, and I notice those are times when the students are really interested. So, I mean, I think that is kind of a strong point. Are there any other strong points there? Well, I, I think it's sort of, uh, there's something natural about it. Uh, I'm the same way. This isn't even a uh, a Christian, but um, I I teach when I teach my historiography class. One of the one of the readings my students like the most is Howard Zinn. Uh, Zinn's People's History of oh, right. uh, the United States or People's History of America, I think, whatever the title is. And Zinn is someone who is he, he comes right out at the beginning and says. You know, history is a, is, a, is a moving train. There's no good reason to pretend that we are morally neutral. There are great evils, and if we're not doing history uh, with an eye toward rooting them out and uh, calling out the, uh, in, in his case, those who are um, abusing the, the marginalized and uh, the you know, people who are, uh, oppressed by uh, government abuse and corruption, uh, then we're why are we doing this? And it certainly it gives my students a sense of uh, that history can be courageous and it can do real and legitimate work in the world. And uh, so I, I find it to be certainly uh, un- understandable. And uh, I think. Uh, there are times when the 
general practices of technical history that tries to resist taking sides and tries to merely describe uh, can be, I found it at times even to be uh, spiritually harmful because I, I come to the end of it. It's like, do I even have a conviction? Is this, am I, am I, am I so interested in being nuanced and careful that I'm no longer able to sort of feel rage when I see injustice and, and uh, uh, abuse? So I, I, in, in that respect, it, it maybe calls out some of what is um, dehumanizing about traditional historical scholarship in that, yeah, as humans, uh, it, as humans studying a human drama, if you're not in some way moved, then maybe you're, uh, you're not doing it right or maybe you're not thinking <laughs> carefully, uh, carefully enough about it. Excellent point. So, with with those strengths, then what are the weaknesses? Well, the weaknesses are. I think that if we are, I think very often we move to the past with an already determined moral framework, which sort of invites us to morally or, or to, to manipulate the past so as to um, create the dynamics of good and evil, bad guy versus good guy that, that uh, we've already determined prior to even engaging the past. And I think uh, one of the good, um, I think I think one of the one of the really good insights of traditional scholarship that causes that, that in, urges the historian to resist that is it keeps ever before us the fact that good, good night the, the 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 human drama is 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 too complicated for uh, easy um, reductions of of the, the past to simple moral fables. Um, I think it. It's uh, there's there's something that uh, by pushing back on it, I think we sometimes we do so uh, for good moral reasons because um, the the world is much grayer than than that, and we ourselves are um, sometimes much more complicit in the world's evils uh, than we. Uh, um, than we allow ourselves to be. So I, I think it, it diminishes the historian's role as a simple moral arbiter and says, look, if we want to have, if we want to respond to the tragedies of the world appropriately, the very first task we have as historians is to understand what, what really happened. And sometimes that means resisting the urge to judge, at least, or, or at least holding off on the, the, the tendency to judge uh, a little longer until we've seen more until we've understood how things play out until we see a little more um, the ways in which people that were initially thought of as evil uh, are a whole lot more like us than were um, than we thought at first blush right so then um, you said that you know we're kind of moving away from more academic styles of uh, historiography and, and that's I think definitely true in chapter four. Historical study is Christian apologetic. Yeah. Uh, so what's that? Well, of course, Christian apologetics is the sphere of Christian thinking that has as its end 
the defense of the truth of Christianity. And I think um, there are a couple of different ways in which history uh, functions within that area, that, that, that uh, if Christianity is true, uh, that we need to contend for the faith, we need to demonstrate that the faith is in fact true. And, and many are moved to study history uh, because as an historical faith, uh, it, its truthfulness requires us to uh, defend, for instance, that Jesus actually lived and that uh, he did the things that he said he did, that the account of Jesus that we find in the Bible is valid, uh, particularly things like uh, the resurrection. Uh, and so that's one area uh, and, and, and one that I spent a much less time on in the book, but an important one where in contending for the historicity of Christian faith, uh, we are doing work not simply that is straightforward historical scholarship, but that also bolsters our confidence in the very foundations of what we believe. Uh, and I think that part of it is probably less controversial than the part that I spend uh, probably the balance of the chapter on, uh, which is uh, the tendency to write about Christianity in the past in a way that conveys to readers that Christianity uh, not just is true from its foundations, but that as it moved and unfolded through time, made the world a better place. And so it's kind of a, an approach to studying history that tries to persuade people of the truthfulness of Christianity by showing that it works, that where Christianity has rooted itself in cultures and in, in people's lives, uh, it has improved the world immensely. So you find a whole literature out there that gives Christianity credit for everything from um, capitalism to democracy to compassion to science. Uh, and it really is done in such a way as to say, look, um, and, and you can understand in, in, a, in an age, in a, in a highly secular age where uh, Christianity gets beat up on a lot for its... Um, for what's perceived to be its, its failings, a lot of these books come along and say, were it not for Christianity, the many of the good things that we think of as associated with modernity and civil society um, and the rule of law, et cetera, would not be here were it not for Christ Christianity. So it's, it's, it's an approach to history that sees as its task uh, making Christianity, uh, really defending the honor of Christianity and, and seeing it as a, as a valid, uh, as a valid work. So that, that, that's kind of what, what I take up for the majority of, uh, of this book. I'm sorry, of this chapter. So, so what are the, the, the strong and weak points of this approach? Well, again, um, and this is kind of a theme uh, for for these three chapters. Um, it makes very good sense that people would feel moved to defend, as I said, put it kind of in a 
colloquialism and to kind of defend the honor of Christianity. Uh, and I do think it's not hard to find kind of a, what function as apologetic works coming the other direction that have an axe to grind against Christian faith. Uh, I think the, the writings of the, the new atheists uh, that uh, were particularly uh, talked about a lot uh, a few years ago, uh, and you can even go back as far as looking at the work of like someone like Edward Gibbon from the 18th century, uh, really were interested in seeing Christianity as um, the, the root of all evil, the source of, uh, of violence, uh, the source of, of divisions, of, of civil war. And so the motivation of trying to say that's, that's not that that's not the whole story, uh, or that Christianity has uh, ha- has done far more good in the world than not, it's understandable, and uh, and and I think a natural uh, a natural in- in- inclination. So I'm, you know, I, I don't on all three of these uh, approaches that I talk about in chapters you know, three, four, and five. I'm um, I'm very sympathetic to the motive and, and understand why these, the, the kinds of writings that are generated out of these traditions are very compelling, especially to lay readers. And, and they, because it affirms what they believe is the best parts of Christian faith. And, uh, it sees Christian faith or, or uh, history as doing something of substance, doing something as I said, like, like the Howard Zinn, uh, did for, uh, in, in his in his writings, doing something good in the world. Um, so I, I, I'm sympathetic to that. So, <clears throat> what then is are the weak appro- points of this approach? Well, I, I think the weak points to uh, I think the, the, the weaknesses are uh, again it, it it invites a kind of source mining uh, so as to find elements within the past that support an already pre-existing way of understanding the world. And I think, uh, look, in the end, I don't, I honestly don't believe that uh, arguments and debates over the truthfulness of Christianity are to be fought in the sphere of history. Um, I don't think the truthfulness of the witness of Christ is in the end reliant on how well Christians have been in making the world a better place. Um, because Christians have a lot of blood on their hands, and uh, a lot of the things that Christians have, have done are kind of uh, less than noble. So I, I think it's a dangerous. I think it's a dangerous sphere to get into, and I think it's. Um, uh, it, it can do more harm uh, than good. Uh, I think I'd much rather uh, see an approach uh, to history that is willing to look at kind of warts and all uh, and uh, acknowledging errors and failures uh, rather than uh, looking at um, uh, Christian faith as always offering good because I, I, I just don't think it's in the end, I don't think it's honest. 
uh, and I think it, it obscures uh, more than it uh, than it reveals. Uh, right. So then moving on to the, the last chapter before your conclusion, historical study is the search for God. This is the one that it, 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 I kind of felt your passion the most. <laughs> so I wonder if you could tell us a, a little bit about that approach and, and why this was such a passionate chapter. Well, it's this is a tricky one because I think uh, I, I describe this approach. Of course, this is an approach to history that is uh, sees uh, God as the author of history and the historian's primary task is, is tracing God's hand moving events forward. And I think um, if you ask sort of a man on the street kind of a, approach, uh, like what would what would make history done Christianly unique, uh, I think this would be the most common sense uh, response, that Christian history is history that includes God and God's presence. And I, again... Once again, I, I, I understand that uh, and I'm sympathetic to it. And, and I think it's particularly compelling when we teach our children uh, children about history and want to uh, bolster their faith by reminding them that God is present in all things and even in control of all things. Um, it becomes problematic and probably uh, a source for my own concern and even, as you said, passion, uh, because I think uh, it, it too easily conflates the doctrine of providence, which I think we should affirm as believers, that is that God is in control, sovereign over all human activities at all times and all places, um, with our ability to know what God is doing and see what he's doing and narrate that. I think those are two very different things. And I think when we conflate them, uh, we get into a lot of trouble. Um, now, again, uh, I think people's motives for doing so, especially with children, uh, are well-placed. Because uh, what it's really about is it's, it's less about studying the past than it is about building faith and trying to reinforce the convictions that we have about the doctrine of providence by looking at, you know, the, uh, the, the unfolding of the American story or the, uh, defeat of the Spanish Armada or, or something like that. Um, I, I, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm under, I understand, uh, but I, I find it to be, um, so, um, so rife with with uh, the possibility for abuse, not just of the record of the past, but also the name and the intentionality of God. Uh, that I, I think it, it's it's a very dangerous place to be. Uh, so I I think that uh, by engaging in this providential approach to history, um, I, I think that we set ourselves up to, in certain ways, see things from God's point of view in ways that we simply can't. Uh, scripture probably spends as much time talking about the ways in which God's purposes and ends are shrouded from us in mystery than it does by revealing specifically what those uh, intentions and actions are. So it's a, 
it's a dangerous terrain, but it's one that's still pretty popular and, and, and ones that I think uh, Christians who are doing history have a responsibility for uh, being able to both sympathize with but also articulate where, where, those, where that approach can be problematic. Excellent. So, you know, you've taken us through the five chapters. You've given us these kind of five approaches, telling us their strongest points and their weakest points. And then in the conclusion, you kind of, um, you know, talk about your own perspective on this. And, and you subtitle your conclusion, historical study as Christian vocation. So could you tell us a little bit what you mean here um, by vocation? And how does treating historical study as a Christian vocation affect how Christians do history and the histories they produce? Yeah, well, it, uh, I couldn't decide whether thinking of history through the lens of the theological exploration of vocation was a sixth approach, that is, its approach unto itself, or even possibly just a, a, an umbrella way of talking about the full, uh, any conscious effort to bring faith and history together. And I, I kind of didn't try to resolve that because I think both ways of thinking about that uh, are, are appropriate. I guess more than anything, what I saw in, in the last um, – now, you can, take an under, you can take an approach to uh, vocation that simply says, um, I'm not going to think at all consciously about faith. Um, I am, as a faithful believer, simply going to do good work. I'm going to produce good scholarship. I'm going to be uh, fair-minded in my use of the sources. I'm going to be uh, thoughtful and conscientious in interacting with colleagues and scholar or, or students. Uh, and you know, if I have opportunities on the side to bear witness, fine. But that's not really that's separate from my work. So that that is actually one approach to vocation that says, you know, all the rest of the stuff you talked about, you can kind of just set it aside and just do good work. Um, I'm not satisfied with that, uh, but I, I do think that uh, another, I think, richer understanding of vocation, more than anything, is nudging believers to, in taking their faith seriously and in desiring to be faithful in it, to um, consider actually all of these approaches and some of what they have to recommend and some of the areas in which they they fall short and and kind of being in conversation uh, with 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 others in trying to work work this stuff out this is uh, it's too important an endeavor that is understanding the past understanding ourselves in light of the past uh, to imagine that it's just something we do as you know in our in our work as professionals and not something that has a larger set of consequences for uh well for all of humans but in particular we who are uh disciples of of Jesus so th this idea of vocation sort of is a is a nice sort of uh way of sort of at least maybe it's a good place to begin we should begin it there and, and work backwards i don't know but but a way to sort of um bring one another into conversation uh, on on these issues. And as kind of um, a question before the final question, one thing that, that just occurred to my mind as I read this, read your book, is it's kind of thinking about what the historian does for others, if, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. 
And I wonder, how might the Seventh history help a Christian work out his or her own um, salvation? I'm thinking of Philippians um, 2, 12. Yeah. Uh, I, I I was glad that you, you kind of sent that uh, to me as a question for me to think about ahead of time. I, I really was was struck by that, um, and I think there's probably been a lot of debate about what Paul might have meant. What a what an interesting idea that for, for as much as the truth of uh, faith and the invitation to uh, salvation and a life of uh, discipleship is laid out in scripture. Uh, Paul presses the reader to, you know, work out your own uh, salvation in fear and trembling. I think that that is a, is a helpful picture of the challenges of grappling with our circumstances and our callings and our responsibilities in time and space in ways that feel both on certain days satisfying and on other days incredibly frustrating. Uh, and I think that that is true of the work of the historian uh, to understand the complexities uh, and the, the, the blind spots that we work with, the, the, the uh, incomplete and sometimes contradictory record of the past that we're trying to make sense of, uh, but also recognizing that in, in our calling to sort of wrestle through these challenges and issues to do so um, doing so is, is a part of more deeply understanding ourselves and deeply understanding uh, the world in which God has called us to, to live out our lives. So I think um, I talk to my students a lot about um, that history is little more than a, an organized uh approach to remembering. Uh, and, and the Bible has a lot to say about memory and uh, remembrance as a pathway of faithfulness. And I do think that we do not have, uh, I think we have a very impoverished sense of ourselves and our calling as believers if we, uh, if we don't have a dynamic uh, understanding of uh, of the unfolding of the past, kind of in a grand sense, but even in a more immediate one. And I, and I think that that, that um, picture of us sort of working out our salvation in, in fear and trembling, I think is a, is a, is a good one for, uh, for, for the challenges that accompany that, that daily pursuit of trying to be faithful in our very, uh, I think we have some faulty remembering equipment. And I think, uh, uh, it hopefully that enables us to to to, to strive for some of these goals with a certain degree of humility. Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much for that reflection, and and we've taken a lot of your time. But I'd like to ask um, to just take a little bit more to so I can uh, ask our uh, traditional last question. What are you working on now? Well, uh, I have been uh, for the last several years. I just mentioned this project on memory. Uh, I have uh, been trying to uh, sort, of, sort of explore uh, so the, the, the larger human uh, practice of public remembrance, sort of strategies of, of remembrance, and I've, I've been trying to hammer out at least the beginnings uh, of another book. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how that that unfolds. But I'm, I, I am interested in uh, this tension between 
uh, our longing to be remembered and the ways in which we uh, erect uh, monuments and memorials and try to in, in, imprint our names and our lives in, in uh, iron and, and stone. Uh, so we have a deep longing to be remembered, but really uh, a, a, an incredibly limited capacity for any of these practices of public remembrance to sustain uh, memories. We're, we're uh, not very good at that. So I've been, I've been looking at sort of both ancient, medieval, and even modern practices of public remembrance and, and even some of the ways in which they have sort of theological bearing on our lives. Well, excellent. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I hope maybe we can have you again. Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> when you complete it. Well, again, thank you very much, Jay, for giving so much of your time. I really appreciate it. Well, it's an honor, and I, I appreciate your interest and uh, your encouragement, and it, it's, uh, it's, it's been, it's been a, a really great time. Thank you so much. This has been the Christian Studies Channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host for the channel. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll come back and listen to another podcast soon. Mm-hmm.